So as I mentioned um, before, the series looking at the different metaphors of, of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. One of the things that Luke mentioned last week, and I think very importantly, is that there is a lot of overlap in these themes. All right? So you know what? I don't think repetition is necessarily a bad thing. If you're anything like me, then maybe you're a tad bit on the dense side and you just need to hear things over and over again, sometimes in order to get it. And, and I understand too, I've listened to a lot of sermons in my life and if you ask me what they said, it'd probably be hard pressed to tell you a whole lot of, you know. <laughs> I mean, sure, things seep in over the years, you know, and you develop doctrine and you develop, um, you know, how you, how you kind of understand and stand the Bible. But, but at the same time, I recognize that probably most of what I'm going to say today, you'll walk out this room and probably forget a lot of it. I mean, I'm not immune to that. I'm not, you know, like, and I'm not annoyed by that. Like, that's just the reality. And so I think this repetition even is a good thing because then week on week on week, you're hearing some of the very same things because these themes, like I said, it's like looking at a diamond, but there's still, there's overlap. And so the first week we talked about Passover and we talked about, um, you know, the idea of, of Passover and, and new Exodus. Well, as we go to talk about, you know, how, how Jesus frees us from slavery and oppression, to sin, right? Well, as we talk about ransom, a lot of those same themes are going to come up. Right? Or as we talk about talked last week about the idea of how Jesus' sacrifice makes us clean so that we may be in the presence of God, we may be with him in relationship with him, so that a God who loves us, who desires relationship with us, yet is holy and other, can draw near to a people who, just like you and me, are messed up. Right, as we read that first Peter passage, and we're not actually going to reread that passage. That's why I had us read it together as a group. I think it's a really good one. Like you find both of those, you find this idea of, of Passover, you find this idea of sacrifice, of blood sacrifice, but you also find him using that language of, of ransom. All three of the metaphors that we are, have, or have talked about and will talk about today are present in that passage. And so, um, it's just important, I think, to recognize that. You're like, right, there's going to be crossover. It's not a bad thing, but um, just know if you're like, I feel like I've heard that before. You might have. All right, okay. The second, the second caveat that I want to make as we get started is this. We always need to be really careful when we dive into a metaphor. Even there, that was like a metaphor about metaphors. I said we would dive into it. Um, right, that as we... As we jump into a metaphor, dive into a metaphor, that we don't push it too far. And that's always the danger with a metaphor, is that it gets pushed to its absolute limits and even past what it could even possibly be saying. And so I think it's always important that we need to be careful, particularly as we get to this language of ransom. Okay? And that is, I mean, I think we all know the idea of like, a, you know, we've seen enough Liam Neeson movies or things like that to know what a ransom is, um, right? Okay, so it's this idea of like, right, somebody gets kidnapped, somebody pays a ransom and they're, and they're released, okay? But do we think that Jesus literally got out his wallet and handed a ransom to somebody? Well, no, that's not what really happened, right? Did that actually happen or is it like that? Okay, and so it's one of those, like, ransom, I think, out of the three that we've done so far, is one we have to be most careful about, because with a ransom, it involves paying somebody. But does the Bible ever actually tell us 
When, when Jesus became a ransom, who was paid that ransom? I'll answer that for you. No, it doesn't. And so neither should we. <laughs> like, I think that's where we begin to, we just drop the metaphor and say it's no longer helpful. <laughs> and we sit in this idea because it's, it's as clear as it needs to be. Right? That, this metaphor is as clear as it needs to be because what we end up walking away with, what the Bible does say about this concept of ransom or this idea of ransom and redemption is this, that sin is enslaving, that sin is costly, that Jesus has set us free then through his costly death. We don't need to speculate about who was paid the ransom or anything like that because if you start pushing this metaphor, and I'll just give you this, if you start pushing this metaphor, it gets difficult fast. If Jesus paid Satan a ransom, it begins to put Satan on the same level as Jesus, or on the same level as God. Is he? Absolutely not. Does Jesus, does God actually need to pay Satan a ransom? No, of course not. So then it becomes problematic. If Jesus pays God the ransom, now we're into a weird situation. Is God paying himself? Right? So that's what I'm saying. Like, see how I understand? Like, this can get really confusing really quickly, and it doesn't need to, because again, the Bible does not address or push the metaphor that far. And so, one last time, this metaphor, what it helps us to see is that sin is enslaving, that sin is costly, that Jesus has set, and Jesus has set us free through his costly death. So with that out of the way, let's jump into it. Again, I'm using metaphors. Like, this is like, it's amazing when you start to think about it, how many metaphors on a regular basis you use all the time, right? Because are we literally going to jump into anything? No, of course not. All right, anyway, so the first thing to ask is this, what is the problem? In the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at that, right? Like, what is the problem? So in the first week, we looked at, um, we asked questions about what is sin? And this is always important. We broke out the whiteboard, we'll break it out again, because I like whiteboards and... I love an excuse to break one out, right? Okay, so we talked about the idea that sin uh, is a force, right? So that was the, that was the way we talked la uh, the first week, that the Bible talks about sin as a force. Does anybody remember, uh, anybody remember the other ones? See, I told you you don't hear most of what gets said. Uh, you, you forget it as you walk out the door, and that's all right. Okay, so we talked about the idea that then sin is... Uh, Idolatry. And does anybody remember the last one? Rebellion. Rebellion, all right. Or law-breaking. Right? So sin is all of these things. And in the first week, we talked about the idea of sin as a force. That is, a force of oppression in this world that... Force of oppression that oppresses people? That's a terrible sentence, but that's... I'm trying to say, right, that sin is a, a literal force, that there is real spiritual evil in this world. And we, we talked about passages like um, Genesis chapter 4, uh, where Satan says to, or sorry, where God says to Cain that, that Satan is, is like, that is waiting for him to devour him, right, that its, it's desire is for him. Sin is crouching at the door and his desire is for him. Or in, in 1 Peter, uh, five, where it talks about sin being like a lion seeking to, or Satan being like a lion seeking to devour, right? So sin is a force. We talked about sin as, um, and we mentioned that sin was idolatry. 
Okay, but we didn't, really, we didn't really cover that aspect in the first week. And then in the second week, Luke really talked about the idea of sin as law-breaking, right? It's, it's, it's not living out of our, it's not really becoming who we were always created to be. That when we, when we engage in sin as law-breaking, we actually become less human than what we were made to be, right? Um, so it's, it's rebellion, that's a good way to put it. So we came up with all kinds of things that, that sin was in that, in that first week. But I think it's worth coming back to that again every single week because, again, sin is one of these important concepts that if we don't have a real understanding of sin, if it isn't ingrained down in us, if it isn't beaten into us almost, like, like if we just can't think with the right categories, then it actually ends up cheapening what Jesus has done for us. It cheapens everything about the Christian faith. Because it makes sin somehow, and I think this is what tends to happen, we make sin somehow insignificant. It's justifiable. Well, you know, like, you know, I, I mean, of course I would do these things, or I just need to do what makes me happy, or, or you know, like all of these things. We have all of these excuses. We cheapen sin rather than seeing sin as something that wants to devour us, right? And so it's important that we have this concept of sin ingrained in us not so that we feel guilty all the time, but so that we understand the incredible riches of God's grace for us, as Paul talks about in Ephesians. So, let's think about this ransom language. Right? And, and when we consider the great weight of sin, we begin to see the dire circumstances that humanity is in. And this theme of ransom, I think, actually helps us to see the dire situation that you and I are in, that sin has left us in. It is as if we are kidnapped by sin and cannot escape. That we have been taken captive and made into slaves and we cannot escape. Only with an extraordinary intervention that would rescue us from this sin, could we be saved? And so really, we kind of come back to this, around to this idea of sin as a force today, I think. But sin as a force that coerces us, that captures us, and leads us into idolatry and law-breaking because we are stuck and captive to the force that is sin. You could look at it this way. So this is another way to, I think, to, to look at it, a helpful way. And I, I don't know, I'm not good at always you know, drawing charts on, uh, on the screen. So I'm just going to draw it here, right? Sin is individual, right? But sin is also systemic. Now, here's the thing. My individual sin, along with your individual sin, and other people's individual sin, leads to systems that create the sinful world that we're in. Right? Because the world was perfect and good and right. And then Adam and Eve messed up, which set the world on a trajectory, right? That led to Cain and Abel, and Cain killing Abel. And then it led to Lamech. And as you read Genesis 1 to 11, guys, 
Genesis 4 to 11 is like some of the weirdest stuff that happens in the Bible. Okay, I'm just going to say it. We're not going to dive into it, but it is. But here's what you need to know about the point of Genesis 4 to 11. It is showing you how individual sin becomes systemic and creates a world of sin and wreaks havoc on God's good world. And what ends up happening then is systemic sin feeds back into individual sin. And what ends up happening then is, is again, point of Genesis 4 to 11, the world is not becoming a better place as we move east of Eden away from the garden and away from God. It's becoming a worse place because this is the perpetual cycle that our world has been on. Over and over. My individual sin, you know, like, just a, just a quick example. Can we read in the Bible that sin, the sins of the father are passed on to the children? We pay for our upbringing. And that's just a reality. Whether that, for good or worse, in many ways, we carry around the baggage of our upbringing. You grow up in a single parent home or whatever, like, not saying like, that, like, look, that's just a reality, but it's going to be different than if you grew up in a home with two, with two stable, with a, you know, stable parents. Because maybe your mom or your dad had to work two or three jobs and you didn't get to see him as often as you would like to. Or whatever. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's what I'm getting at, right? Even there, in that very small kind of microcosm, <laughs> you begin to see how sin is systemic. But then as we push this out into the bigger world, we can see the systems of corruption, the systems of evil that exist in our world that lead us just to gasp and go, I cannot believe the world is like this. This is how. This is how. All right? So let's just talk about this. So we follow, you and I, follow disordered desires. And this is, I think, what we see in Genesis 3. Disordered desires that lead then to slavery. And the Bible, interestingly, talks quite a bit about the idea of sin as, as a force. And one of the ways it does that is it uses the word sarks, which is flesh. Okay? Now, sometimes in the Bible, the word flesh just means your skin. Right? And that's all it means. But sometimes it's speaking of something deeper than that. It speaks of the flesh as almost something at war with God. As if it's almost like a power unto itself at war with God. In opposition to the Spirit. So Galatians chapter 5. Verse 17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you see, again, how sin as a force there is in opposition to the things of the Spirit? So I just, briefly, I do want to spend time on this again, because I think this concept of sin is hugely important. Is asking a question. All right, we'll get to the next one. Uh, asking the question what are some ways that we are individually enslaved to sin? 
And I don't mean like, I'm not asking for like biographical things here, you know, like autobiographical for you to give all the details of the things. But just very generally, what are some things that you would say you notice of, of like what it looks like to be enslaved to sin? I know it's like a big question to just ask and be like, hey, throw out your random answers. If you're in Galatians 5, it might help. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, it becomes habitual. We could say like destructive habits. I think those are like really obvious ways. And those are, those are things that like even there within our culture we know. Like even people who, who don't follow Jesus at all can look at that and say that is not good. Right? Certain, you know, certain habits that people uh, take on. Um, all kinds of addictions, things like that, that that we see even like sin. You know, it destroys. It destroys families. It destroys friendships. It destroys lives. Anybody else? Anything? All right. All right. All right. We'll keep going. Galatians 5, 19 to 21 gives us a pretty good list <laughs> of what, it, what it, individual sin looks like. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and we're not going to like dive into each one of these and talk about them because I want us to get through the sermon today and also because some of them could be really awkward. Um, but let's just leave it at this, where Paul finishes by saying, and things like these. I love it. Like Paul understands, because he's a human, that we love to create loopholes and say, well, he didn't say this one. And that's why he, I love how he finishes that. And anything like it. So just, you run with that and anything that even seems like this that's what I'm talking about. So close the loophole there, right? All right, so we see different things uh, in there. Um, you know, and, and you can see how each one of these could be destructive. How each one of these, as individual sin, begins to look at people as less than, as things to be used as objects, where it's putting other things above God, even, All right, so we'll, we'll leave that one there, all right? But needless to say, individual sin and these destructive habits, and maybe that's a good one, all of these, every single one of the things that Paul mentions in here, for many of us, become habits because they're things that we do over and over. It's the air that we breathe. It's the water that we swim in, and we don't, we don't even see it often in our own selves. Things like jealousy or fits of anger. I mean, it's just who I am. Just who I am. Right? No, you've developed habits of anger. You've developed habits of jealousy. We live, in a, we, we live in a consumeristic society that wants you to be jealous, that wants you to envy, and thrives and succeeds on you being envious <laughs> and jealous because it means you'll go out and buy more. Right? And so these habits, these destructive habits, we don't even often see them. But this is the sin 
that then leads to bigger things like systemic problems. And so I guess it leads to the question then, when everyone does it, which they do, it leads to systems of slavery. And so what are some of the systems of sin? Yes, very literally. I mean, like you think about like as a church, how we've done like the walk for freedom, like quite literally slavery. There are more slaves in the world right now than during like the biggest part of like the British Empire. Like, think about that for a moment. Like, we hear all the time in history books about all the slavery that's happened in the world, right? You think about the, the chattel slavery that happened in, in, in the U.S., right, in, in America. You think about the slavery that went on, you know, the trading of slaves throughout the British Empire, whether that was Irish people sent to the Caribbean, whether that was, you know, like Africans brought to America, whether that was Indians brought to South Africa, like, wherever that may be, you just, like, think about that for a moment, and then think about the fact that there are more slaves now than there, than there ever have been. Things are not getting better, <laughs> right? Sin makes things worse. Anybody else? Any, anything? I'll just draw a line here instead of spell it again. Nailing it today. Racism. Yes. George, I'm glad you're here. I needed you today. But the Lord knew that. Yeah. No. Slavery and racism. Two things that go hand in hand often. All right. Anybody else? Anything? Corruption? Abuse? Right? I mean, like, systems of abuse, systems of corruption, systems of oppression, systems of objectification, systems of, of devaluation, systems of greed. All of these things, like, it's sin, but it's sin on a macro level. And we don't typically think of sin that way. So what do we do about it? What is it? We're like, we're so, it's one of those where I think there is a reality in which we have our individual sin, but we're also in systems of sin that keep us and hold us in bondage. Like that's how serious sin is, guys. It's not just like me individually doing bad things, but it's saying everything is so corrupt. Everything is permeated by sin that it affects everything. And so, these systems then form who we are. We, as a part of society, perpetuate old systems and form new ones. And in turn, it affects others. Sin ends up having a weight to it. Right? Have you ever heard of like, the weightiness of something? Right? Think about it. Like, sin has a weight to it. And it's unbearable. It is unbearable. It is a weight that you and I were never meant to carry. And it's a slave master that piles more and more onto us. Coming back to the metaphor from the first week, right? we read that Pharaoh, as he got more and more angry with the Israelites, took away their straw, and still they had to do the same quota of bricks. They had to make the same quota of bricks. Sin is the same way for you and me. Sin takes away our straw and increases the quota. It's unceasing. 
It's unrelenting and it's unnatural. And that I think is really important. Sin is unnatural. We need to think about that. Like that's not who we were made to be. Right? God did not create sin. <laughs> right? God wasn't up there saying like, you know, and here's the fish and they're good and here's the birds and they're good and here's humans and they're good and here's sin. That's, yes. No. That's not how it worked, right? Sin is an invader into God's good world. It is not natural. It is unnatural. And so for us to sin, it should not be natural. It becomes natural because we live in a sinful world. It feels natural, but it is an intruder and it is not natural. In Psalm 49, we'll read in verses 7 to 8. Truly no man can ransom himself or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of his life is costly and can never suffice that he should continue to live on forever and never see the pit. Sin is so costly that you and I, basically, like this passage says, we're screwed. Like, we're never going to break this system. We will never break out of that system on our own. We will always be enslaved to sin, left to our own devices. So how, how can this be broken? How can this cycle ever be broken? And I think that is the question that so many of us feel, but we don't have an answer to. Many of us, many of our friends and our family, this is the feeling that they have. There are systems that are messed up in this world. There are people who do awful things. I do terrible things. How can I ever break the system? It feels overwhelming. Even for people who advocate all the time for people who are broken and, 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 and stuck in, in bad situations. Like, I know plenty of, of people who are not Christians who feed the homeless, who take care of things. But guys, it can feel overwhelming. What do I do? There's no solution. This is just the way it's always going to be. How can this cycle ever be broken? We as individuals and we as a world are in chains to sin. Sin is made of slaves and holds us down. And we can't free ourselves. So our only hope is for a Redeemer willing and able to ransom us. And that's what a Redeemer is. Right? You hear, you read Bible passages, you probably come across that word a lot, Redeemer. Right? It's connected to the idea of ransom. That somebody to redeem us, to take us out of our situation and to restore us. And so we see that this solution is that Jesus, big surprise, I know, big reveal, you didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> Jesus has come to set us free. He is the one who has paid the price for our redemption. I love it. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So if you're reading, uh, if you're reading in, in, in Luke, Luke chapter 4, right? We find Jesus, he, he's at the synagogue. And somebody was like, you know, I, I just love that this like happened. Obviously, it's, it's, there's no way this is like an accident, right? So Jesus is like sitting out there and, and, and you know, the rabbi or whatever there was like, hey, Jesus, why don't you just come up and, and read for us this morning's passage? Just like how we read before. And Jesus got up and he, he reads... <clears throat> the passage for the day, and it's Isaiah 61.1. 1. 
The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. For the, sorry, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. Those are the first words of Jesus' ministry, guys, in Luke. They're the very first words of Jesus' ministry. And he goes on to say at the end in, in verse 21, this scripture, this is what Jesus says in Luke 4, 21, this scripture has been fulfilled this very day. Jesus right there says, I am the one who has come to set the captives free, to do something about this problem of sin. But how will Jesus release the prisoners? The sin, our sin, is so great. Our sin is pervasive. What could Jesus do? Jesus gave his life. And I think it's really important to see how costly sin is. That it costs Jesus his life. Like Jesus didn't go to the Jesus didn't go to the cross for fun. <laughs> the price of sin is costly. Sin is destructive. Sin is pervasive. Sin is costly. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Maybe you're familiar with that passage. Maybe you've heard that passage. This is how, again, I think it's always important. How did Jesus understand his death? How did Jesus understand what he came to do? Well, this is one of the ways that Jesus explicitly say, <laughs> says what he came to do. To give his life as a ransom for many. The author of Hebrews says, With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Right there, we've, we've got a crossing of metaphors, don't we? Last week and this week. And so what did Jesus accomplish through his costly death on the cross for our sin? Jesus' ransom brought our redemption. Our redemption. We've been set free, but we've been set free to live free. We have been redeemed out of slavery and given life with Jesus. And so the question then becomes, what do we do with that freedom? What do we do with the freedom that we have been given? Can we just now do whatever we want? Who or what do we choose to give ourselves to? Because we will all give ourselves to something. We won't get into the philosophical arguments about that, but the reality is we all give ourselves to something. You know what that is in you. What it is you hold most valuable, whether that's a spouse, a friend, 
a job, whatever it might be, we were made to love and to worship, and we will worship and love something. And so, what do we do with that freedom? Who do we give ourselves to? I think the right answer there is Jesus, just to clarify. In Galatians 5, verse 1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There is, uh, my boys have a devotional book that, and we, we read every night, we either read out of like a, you know, a children's Bible or a devotion uh, or something like that. We do that together every night. And there's one of them, there's a story in there about a girl who, who was a slave, who was uh, standing up on a, on a pedestal at an auction to be bought. And she was bought by a man. And as she walks out of the room with the man, they get outside the, room, outside the building and the man looks at her and says, you are free. She's like, what do you mean I'm free? You're free. I bought you and I'm saying you can go. You're free. I don't want to keep you and hold you and enslave you. I want you to be free. And so she says, can I, I can go where I want to go? Yeah, you can go where you want to go. I can do what I want to do. You can do what you want to do. Okay. Then I'll follow you. And she worked for the man and followed him. Why? Because she could tell from the very beginning that he was good. And she didn't know where else to go. All right, and I think that story just, in, in you know what? Honestly, it's in there, the little devotional. I don't know whether it's true or not. It's a good story. But I think it paints for us the picture. And it's the same picture that Sally Lloyd-Jones in her little devotional wants to, wants to paint for people. And this, this idea, we have to follow somebody. We have to follow something. And what better person to follow than the one who has set us free? And so, as we said in the beginning that sin was a weight we were never meant to carry. We read Jesus saying in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is light. Jesus offers to take that burden from us and to give us the easy yoke of following him, of living with him, of being with him. He breaks this cycle in our lives and frees us to follow him. Now often, and we know in ourselves, the reality of our lives is going back to this. As Peter talks about, I think it's in 1 Peter uh, 3, about a dog returning to his vomit. It's a fun metaphor. You and I often 
find ourselves back here. But this is not the easy yoke. And the more we know Jesus, the more we become like Jesus, the more we do what he did, we discover that actually the yoke and the burden that he offers truly is light, that this is really life. This is what we were created for. This is what is natural. To live in redeemed relationship with Jesus, redeemed from sin and into life with Jesus. And so we find our ransom and redemption then lead to adoption. As at this point now is well documented in church this morning, I became a citizen on Friday. Um, so Ireland is stuck with me. Um, so yeah, and, and as I was waiting in line with, you know, 1,500 of my best friends there, um, my fellow citizens, uh, I had an interesting reflection. During the ceremony, this politician gets up and, you know, politicians do what politicians do, and he's giving his speech. And, and, and you know, to be honest, I went into the room not necessarily feeling super moved, um, but I had this weird unexpected moment where I, where I did feel a little bit, um, you know, warm and fuzzy inside. Um, because the, the politician, he had been using this language of saying, you know, and in Ireland we this, and in Ireland we that. And, and uh, you know, in Ireland, we value this, and we value, you know, and like, in Ireland, we're this kind of people. And, and then he, you know, we all stand up and we take our, our oath of saying, you know, I will obey the laws of Ireland and all this kind of thing. And then he says, okay, in our country, in your country, this is what we do. You, and he, he used the language of adoption. You have been adopted into this country. This is now your country. Our stories are now your stories. I don't talk about our Irish, or, you know, my Irish stories. I talk about our stories. And, you know, and all of this. And it was, it was one of those, like, kind of moments. It was, it was moving. And it got me thinking. I'm like, how convenient that I'm talking about this sermon, where I think it leads into the idea of adoption. Because you and I have been set free, but not just set free out into ambiguity to, to kind of, you know, in shifting sand, you know, sinking waters, whatever we want to, you know, whatever kind of other metaphor we want to use, um, there we have been ransomed and redeemed, and the other language that the Bible often uses is the idea of adoption. We have been adopted into the family of God. The story of God's people is our story. We are God's people. We're not just freed to roam about aimlessly and alone. We're freed to live in restored relationship with God. And here's the thing. You know, as moving as it was to be adopted into, Irish, into, into Ireland, I don't somehow, uh, you know, look at Michael D. Higgins as a father figure now. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> But when the Bible uses the language of adoption, it uses this language of adoption and now says that God is your father. And I don't know what kind of dad you had. Some of you I know what kind of dad you've had. But for most of us, I, 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 don't, I don't know your dad. <laughs> maybe he's a great dad, maybe he's a terrible dad. 
But we don't compare God to our earthly fathers. We compare our earthly fathers to God because there is no father like him. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children, and now we call him Abba, Father. It's not up on the screen. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, man. Yeah. Uh, now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share in his suffering. For the sake of time, we're not going to talk about the suffering part. We'll save that for another sermon another day. But I felt like it was, I couldn't cut that out and say, you know, pretend like it's not there. It's there. But here's what I want to focus on. I want to come back to this idea. We, we can cry out to God as Abba, Father. That word Abba is an intimate word. It's not some, you know, I don't know, some title like king or queen or something. It's, a, it's an intimate word. Abba, Father. That, that is the access we have to God because we have been ransomed and redeemed and adopted into the family of God. And I don't know if you need to hear that. Maybe you do. Maybe today that's what you need to hear right now. You're part of God's family. God loves you. He's not some ambiguous force up in the sky, but he is a personal God who desires to know you and to be known by you. So much so that he sent Jesus to be our rescuer. And in a few minutes, Tiffany's going to lead us in a song, uh, Your Thoughts for Us. And I was just thinking about that line uh, after she sent me the, her songs for, for this week to put into the slides. As high as heaven stands above this broken land, your, sorry, your steadfast love is higher still. You love me even more than I have known before. You always have and always will. That is good news. And so now we live as those who are free. Coming back to Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We can't do this on our own. We need the Spirit to change us. Galatians 5.22-26 says, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. This is what it looks like to live redeemed. This is what it looks like to be God's adopted children. This is what it looks like to live out true humanness. To give up sin. To live the new life that you were created for. To give up the heavy burden and to put on the yoke of Christ. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. In other words, go on and do them. <laughs> you are free 
to live that way. You guys, we're free to live that way. We tend so often to go back to that, you know, that list that Paul says before. The list of things like, and anything like this. <laughs> we often return to that. But guys, that's not where life is found. It may be for a moment, it may feel, I may feel alive for a moment. But all that will do is destroy ourselves and destroy others. Destroy their relationships, destroy futures, destroy everything. We leave a selfishness. We just leave a wake behind us. And so often we live deceived thinking like, man, this is pretty great. But eventually we find out it's not so great. But because of Jesus, we are free. We are free to live with love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, not just niceness, not just politeness, but kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the easy yoke that we were created for. This is who we were created to be. And this new life begins by being set free, and it's characterized by knowing Jesus, being like Jesus, and doing what he did. You guys, that's something we've talked a lot about uh, at length, about how we can know Jesus better. Right, we did a whole sermon series on this. Uh, like I'd love to rehash that with you if you want. But again, I'm not going to do it right now. But about how we can know Jesus better, how we can be like Jesus more and more, and how we can do what he did. And that's where we find life, and we're free. We're free to live that way.